welcome to Handels Bank and Insights. We're joined with Chief Economist James Sproul for our weekly economic update. Good morning, James. Good morning, Charlotte. Okay, let's get started. So last week, we looked at the UK high frequency data and saw that London was lagging the country in opening up. This week, I know you've been looking at the UK versus other advanced nations. What can you tell us? Well, thanks, Charlotte. Um, I mean, a number of interesting things are coming up. First of all, um, the, the international high frequency data says that uh, the return to the workplace really across the board, we're looking at uh, US, uh, France, Sweden, Germany, it's really stalling. Uh, it's either not going anywhere or in fact been falling off in the last few weeks. Uh, now, of course, part of that could be um, because people are going on summer holiday. Um, but at the same time, I think there's enough evidence to say those who people who aren't going on summer holiday are just that little bit more prone to being working from home just at the moment. If we look at the UK versus some of those countries on you know, a whole variety of things, retail, grocery, you know, or how often they're going to the grocery store, uh, are they going to transit stations? Um, the, the answer there is uh, pretty much across the board. UK does tend to be one of the most shut down places around and people are more reluctant um, to, to go out here than they are in many other countries as well. And I, I know we'll touch upon that in some of the other data uh, in, in just a moment. And finally, just on, on that public transport, because I think that really is key, particularly for London, um, trust in public transport is still really low. If we look here in the UK, it's about 30% below its normal level. Uh, and that's one of the lowest you're going to see amongst all of those countries I've mentioned. So it's, it's right down there with Sweden, it's also pretty low. Um, but even places like um, the US, it's, it's running at about 20% down rather than 30% down. So um, they are a little bit more um, willing to use public transport than we prove to be here in the UK. Okay, so people still seem reluctant to fully engage. Um, do you think COVID is still a danger? Well, that's, that's an interesting question because looking at the number of COVID cases, what we see is a, clearly a big spike upwards in the Delta variant. Um, and we saw that big spike upwards in the UK. We saw a big spike upwards in the Netherlands as well, for instance. Um, but they also really collapsed down very, very fast. Um, Netherlands particularly fast, even faster than we saw here in, in the UK. Uh, the UK's had just a little hiccup in the last week or so. Um, but um, I think what's interesting here is so the huge falling away, but more importantly, how many deaths has it caused? And the answer was in previous waves when we saw these huge spike upwards in number of cases, we saw, uh, unfortunately, big spike upwards in the number of people who were getting ill and going to the hospital and eventually some people dying. Um, that's not been the case this time. So we had our second peak, 18.2 people um, per million dying, and now it's 1.3. So it's, it is really a different scale of what the actual underlying danger is. And, and we have to start to ask ourselves, at what point are people going to start to react to the actual as opposed to the fear of um, uh, what COVID or this latest wave of COVID might be bringing? Mm -hmm. Okay, so if we take a look at that COVID data a little more, we have seen some pretty scary forecasts over the past year. Um, my question to you is, how have they turned out? Who is in most danger? And have you been pinged by the, the app? Well, um, I, we, we looked at the, um, uh, the SAGE forecasts, um, the, the um, advisory group for the government, who's helping them make all sorts of decisions. Uh, and their forecasting record has, frankly, been poor. Um, I mean, really remarkably poor. They were looking at hospitalizations that they were estimating could be well over 25,000 and they were under 5,000. Um, what you have to ask yourself is at what point are they going to start to reflect upon not just the mechanistics of a um, uh, computer formula 
um, but also what's been going on on the ground and how that's shaped uh, their their decision making. I think they need to reflect a bit more on what's been going on before they come up with their forecast. But looking at some of the things like the cases and the number of patients in hospital, again, as I just said, um, with deaths, if you look at the number of patients in hospital, much, much lower this time than before. Um, those people that are getting it does seem to be quite a bit younger this time. Of course, those people are, are less likely to be uh, vaccinated. Uh, so I think the vaccines, the evidence is the vaccines are um, really having an enormously beneficial effect. And finally, on that pandemic, um, I personally haven't been pinged, but certainly I know a lot of people that have. And I think there's some interesting behavioral um, uh, indications here because what we've seen is an enormous number of people being pinged. Um, and many of them don't feel like they uh, deserved to be pinged. And so we're seeing people ditch the, the app itself, which, of course, is not the government would like at all. And, and the result is the government tweaked the, um, uh, the app be to make it a bit less sensitive, because if you make it too sensitive, it over pings. And uh, I think that's probably what did happen at the uh, end of July. And therefore, people simply say, well, I'm not really in danger, so I'm not going to pay any attention to this, which is not the lesson the government is trying to push onto people at all. And so there needs to be a bit of give and take here. And uh, if people are really in danger, tell them. But if they're not really in danger, don't ping them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So overall, we seem to have embraced lockdown with alacrity. Has business coped? Well, yes, I think it has. I think one of the things that's really interesting here is that the UK, of course, has officially reopened. But there's a difference between the official reopening and the people actually acting upon that. And so I think what we're, we've got here is we need a bit of leadership, frankly, between uh, not cautious government statements, but if we're ready to reopen, let's reopen. Let's push uh, and get you know, offices reopened, get businesses reopened. Don't issue equivocal statements because the result of that is um, we see whilst officially the, the stringency index is measured by, by various um, people like uh, Oxford University show that the UK stringency has fallen away. You haven't seen that falling away in people's actual reaction. And I think that's because um, they're still acting on what they think the danger might be. And the government's not been giving enough of a clear indication. Thankfully, of course, um, for business overall, things are looking OK. Um, really, the problems are concentrated in those two areas, which, which they've long been concentrated in. And that's arts and entertainment and accommodation and food services, which, of course, is hotels and restaurants. So those areas still showing a bit of pain in terms of uh, turnover is down where they would expect it uh, in the beginning of July. Uh, we hope with the most recent data coming through, which of course will be post the opening up, that we'll see at least the social spending going up. We, we do think that the, the social spending has gone up uh, a bit more than the work spending. And the work spending, of course, the real question is going to come in September. Uh, will people move back in large numbers to the office? I think that the hope must be yes, um, but the, the, the jury is still very much out as to whether that would be the case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so if we go back to the actual economy, last week we had GDP data for Q2, a pretty big gain given it was being measured against the collapse of a year ago. Um, what is going on there and where are we headed? Well, I think the GDP figures last week were pretty good, actually. Um, they were in line with consensus, but consensus was pretty optimistic. Uh, we're only 4.4% short of where we were in pre-pandemic. Uh, so that's some, some good stuff. Um, and I think that uh, on present um, present trends, we're probably likely to equal that end of 2019 level uh, towards the end of this year, beginning of next. Um, and I think there's a, a number of things coming through here. First of all, private consumption has really done very, very well. Um, and we've seen people shift from buying stuff, social spending. So I think that's good. And I think that as the autumn progresses, we're going to be looking at a lot more business investment. Uh, that's that's clearly the, the area that's uh, going on. But there's probably plenty of scope for that as well. Not only do businesses have 
quite a bit of money set aside uh, to do that investment. And not only are there lots of places where they, I think it's becoming obvious where those investments can be made profitably. Um, also, investment levels have been running a bit low recently um, as businesses have been looking for exactly where should I deploy my, my cash. Um, and so I think that we're looking at a, at a good business investment and that really will flow through the beginning of next year as well. So we'll be looking at moving back, as I say, to the pre-pandemic level by the end of this year, beginning of next. Uh, and I think that that um, then sets us up well. There is a question as to where we go from there. Uh, and that's the sort of thing we're going to be covering in our global markets forecast, which we'll, we will be releasing at the beginning of September. Wonderful. So if we just quickly take a look at wealth, you've had a look at Capgemini's latest World Wealth Report. Do you have any insights you'd like to share? Yeah, the Capgemini puts out a, a World Wealth Report. I think it's actually a very, very good report. Um, they've been doing it for quite a few years and they, they track a uh, number of wealthy people around the world. They break them into sort of three um, uh, three categories, uh, what they call mass affluent. Um, that's people sort of under five million US dollars, one to five million US dollars mid-tier millionaires, and then the ultra-high net worth with people with more than 30 million US dollars in disposable income or, or, or investable income. A number of things, I think, come up here. First of all, Europe is, uh, is and remains the third biggest area of wealth in the world. Uh, that's following um, North America, which is the biggest, uh, Asia Pacific, which is actually catching up towards North America uh, pretty quickly, and then Europe, and then other areas much, much smaller. That said, Europe is probably one of the more slow-growing. I mean, it's not Latin America, which is shrinking, but it's, it's one of the more slow-growing areas. Uh, and I think that that is a um, real concern. Are we missing the boat on the next global trend of, of how wealth is created? Um, and I think for us, uh, you know, looking at our customer base and, and what happens about all that, about 90% of uh, wealthy people by number and 40% of the wealth, um, wealthy people by amount of money are what we would call mass affluent. And I think that's it's really, in many cases, um, the sorts of clients that many of us uh, work with at Handelsbank. And I think that that's a, a key thing, thinking about um, you know, what is our, our market, what's happening to all of that. Um, it's also very interesting, where does that money come from? And um, the Capgemini report goes into it. It's gone into it a bit more in previous editions, I would say, than this most recent edition, which came out in July. Um, but the number one way in which people become wealthy, of course, both in, in Europe, but also across America, Asia, is by starting their own business. So entrepreneurs. Uh, and the second most common way is by uh, becoming successful senior executives. And the third most common way is by inheritance. So um, it's not the case that people might think it's not time that it's about inheritance. It really isn't. It's, it's actually, if you really, really want to be extremely rich, uh, the best way is to start a company and have that company do very, very well indeed. <laughs> Simple as that. <laughs> um, and so finally, as we love to look at property in our weekly podcast, um, and I believe you found some evidence of the dash for space seems to be emerging. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Now, we've had a thing for a long time, which we call um, pretty cities, which uh, says that people, when they do uh, leave um, uh, large cities, whether that be London or, or Birmingham, or Manchester, Edinburgh, wherever else, they tend to move to the pretty towns in, in the area. Um, but this is really looking at what's happened to homes costing more than one million pounds. Um, and what we've seen is that number of those homes sold. Now, of course, this is just on the number of sold, so not the number that exist. But the number of, of homes worth more than a million pounds in the rest of England and Wales has now surpassed that of the, those in Greater London. Um, so I think that that's, that's interesting. Uh, it's the first time that's happened since at least 1995. And looking at where are those homes likely to be, um, you actually, you end up with a lot of the places that you probably anyway. So we're looking at uh, Sussex, we're looking at the home counties, we're looking at the Cotswolds, we're looking at Hampshire, 
Um, it's the sort of southern, very prosperous southern UK counties, uh, southern English counties that are seeing lots, lots of those uh, average asking price really started to, to push up. And I think it's some evidence that we're, uh, we have seen a shift um, or a race to space. Whether that continues through the opening up is a different question, but certainly I think that this is uh, undoubtedly attributable to uh, the lockdown and the COVID uh, pandemic. Wonderful. Well, thank you as always, James. It's great to chat and uh, we'll speak to you next week. Thank you very much, Charlotte.